from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. Learn more at aarp.org wv. The Charleston Gazette-Mail, using its CGM app to deliver the latest news, traffic, and weather alerts, keeping you in the know while you're on the go. Lumos Networks, online at lumosnetworks.com. West Virginia University, online at wvu.edu. Orion Strategies, professional public relations, government affairs, creative services, and research and polling, with offices in Charleston, Buchanan, Martinsburg, Pittsburgh, and Columbus. Welcome to the Legislature Today from the State Capitol Building. I'm Suzanne Higgins. Lawmakers are working weekends and evenings now as we enter the seventh week of the session. Tonight we'll discuss a controversial Medicaid bill originating in the House Finance Committee and reported to the floor at almost the last possible moment. We'll discuss that further. But first, senior reporter Dave Mistich joins me for an update on all the action today. Welcome, Dave. Hey, thanks. Let's start in the House. We had a couple of uh, motions right up at the top of session this morning to discharge bills from the committee, bring them to the floor for action. It began with Delegate Ellington. That's right. And before we get into all these motions, because there were a lot and some of them kind of get in the weeds, should point out the crossover day is Wednesday. Mm -hmm. That being said, need, bills need to be read a first, second, and third time. So there's really no coincidence that we saw all right, of these motions. Right, it's prompting the action on the floor Absolutely. today. So, you know, all of this kicked off with Delegate Joe Ellington. He was calling on the Tim Tebow bill to be discharged from committee. Uh, I believe that was in the House Education Committee. That's House Bill 3127. Basically, this bill allows for uh, homeschool students to participate in secondary school activities, extracurricular activities, um, basically want to join a football team, a baseball team, whatever. Um, this bill would allow those homeschool students to do so. Of course, there was some debate on the floor about that motion, and we'll take a quick look at all of that action for the House today. Uh, this is a, a bill that was allowing homeschool students to participate in local athletic or extracurricular activities in the public school system. There are stringent requirements for each of those students. This has been something we've been working on for the past several years. It went to the governor two years ago and was vetoed. The corrections on that were made over that time. Um, feel that it's something that uh, could not get out of the education committee but something that the body did uh, vote on previously. I would like to see that passed. The, the gentleman's motion, while it technically comports with the rules of the House, in my opinion, seriously violates the spirit behind this particular rule. The purpose of the availability to discharge a bill is there in case a committee chair sits on a bill and refuses to put it on the agenda. There have been several times in this session when what's called the end of bill, the employment non in, uh, and housing non-discrimination bill, uh, has been subject to this motion and has been rejected. 
In that case, it's been sitting in the same committee literally for years. In this case, the Education Committee has seriously discussed and debated this bill and is still in the process of doing so. For that reason, I think it would be a corruption of the rules of the House to pass this motion. Thank you. There was a lot going on up in education this year, major education bills. If there was a good bill up there that didn't complete its action, I know it was taken up. I know it was debated. I don't think it ever came for an up or down vote. So if my friend from the 27th has a good bill that uh, is hung up and didn't get out, didn't get full action in the committee, I will support his motion to uh, bring it to the floor for further work. Thank you. And that motion was adopted and it was read for a first time. There was then an attempt to remove a bill that had been tabled. That's right. And uh, well, it, it, the, the motion to discharge that bill had been tabled. This is, this is House Bill 2733. We've heard a lot about this bill uh, in the aftermath of Delegate Eric Porterfield's comments about the LGBTQ community. The House Democrats have been working all seemingly all session to get this bill out to the floor. All those attempts have 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 failed. Delegate Mike Pushkin, you know, in, in commenting about this first motion on the Tim Tebow bill, called for cons some consistency in their actions on the floor. Uh, Pushkin made the mo motion to remove the motion to discharge from the table. Um, and again, that would that bill would add gender identity and sexual orientation to the state's Human Rights Act. That motion was rejected. All right, and then Delegate McGeehan uh, also made a, uh, uh, a move to discharge a, a bill from committee. That's right, and the, uh, the same sort of situation with, with his bill as it was with this 2733. Um, the motion to discharge, he made that Friday, it was tabled. He successfully untabled that motion and you know, called for, for this bill to be brought from committee into the floor. Uh, this is the Guard Defense Act. It would call for the, a congressional declaration of war before the National Guard could be sent overseas and, and deployed in such a manner. Uh, that's House Bill 2732. And we'll take a quick look at Delegate Pat McGeehan speaking about House Bill 2732. This is an important policy, I think, that we need to pass out of this chamber, at least one chamber to send a message to other state legislatures that we do have a, uh, some sort of um, mechanism that we can force some sort of accountability on Washington, D.C., and some sort of effort to restore constitutionalism to the power of war. Article 1, Section 8 of the U.S. Constitution, which every member of this body has taken an oath to support and defend gives the power of war strictly to the U.S. Congress. And I don't have to run through all the notable figures and authorities on the Constitution, the framers, the founders. Again, you've heard that all. This bill is, seeks to rectify this grave abrogation and deviation from constitutional law over the past 75 years, where the Congress has abdicated its duty to the executive and we have gone to war on a whim continually. And, you know, with all this discussion about these motions, and particularly the, the House Bill 2733 being rejected, um, you know, Delegate Sean Hornbuckle of Cabell County, a Democrat, he got up and, and sort of, you know, asked the, all the delegates to take note of what happened today. We'll take a quick look at his remarks on the House floor. I would just like to note that on Monday, February the 25th, 
we just now discharged bills on the defense guard and Tim Tebow. That's okay. But we did not want to debate civil rights for everybody. Understand what we just did. All right, we'll do. And so Dave, what happens with that? Well, um, you know, we're now moving along. Um, you know, all these bills will be on their particular readings. Um, you know, of course, Delegate Ellington's bill and Delegate McGeehan's bill, on both on first reading today, they move along. All right, now, um, the, the big salary bill, 2730, there was action on that this, this weekend, not the action that um, some lawmakers wanted. Where are we with that? Well, that's, of course, the teacher, school service personnel, state police pay raise bill. That passed the House on Friday. Uh, it's been referred to Senate Education. They'll likely meet tomorrow, but not likely to see that bill on the agenda. Okay, and then there was Senate Bill 544 that passed today, right. and um, that's a pay increase for state police. That's right, and that bill passed unanimously in the Senate. It would increase uh, state police and all of, all of those employees pay uh, $3,000 each year for the next three years. And so I, I have to ask you, does that leave, the passage of that bill, does that leave 2730 a little vulnerable? Well, I, I think that remains to be seen. I mean, Senate Bill 554 or 544 has just passed the Senate. See if there's any appetite over the House. I think we all know that there is a difference between the teacher pay raises that include state police and a bill that just includes state police. So we'll see uh, as that move, moves along. I know that, you know, the teachers um, and school service personnel, Governor Justice made that promise for a 5% pay increase. Uh, did that in the state of the state address, did that before the midterm election, and has done so this session. So I think they're all looking out for that to happen. All so. right. At this point, we, uh, join, we are joined by uh, Shayla Klein from our Morgantown station. Shayla is our uh, digital reporter, and we always ask her to uh, follow social media and see who is saying what, who is tweeting what. Uh, as it relates to legislative action. Uh, welcome, Shayla. What do you have for us this evening? Hi, Shazana and Dave. To start off with, the American Civil Liberties Union spoke out against a bill that would create a work requirement for Medicaid eligibility. Executive Director Joseph Cohen issued a statement that says, adding re work requirements to Medicaid would be devastating for people with disabilities who have been deemed able to work by detached government bureaucrats. Work requirements would also be devastating to countless other individuals whose circumstances may keep them out of the workforce for any number of reasons. Rather than continuing to criminalize and demonize our, the poor, our legislature should show compassion for economic conditions facing our state. And that, of course, is the um, Bill 3136. There was actually a press conference here today among several uh, groups that are uh, opposed to that, uh, the unintended consequences, perhaps, of that bill. And we'll have that discussion in just a moment. Shayla, what else do you have for us? Well, I've been seeing a lot of response to the campus carry bill. Among those opposed to the bill is Morgantown City Councilman Barry Lee Wendell, he tweets at Governor Jim Justice, I beg you to veto campus carry if legislature is foolish enough to pass it. ACLU Communications Director Tim Ward also spoke out against the bill saying, 
We're legit the only developed country in the world that thinks more guns is the answer when confronted with mass shooting culture. The disconnect is mind-numbing. Supporting this legislation, we have West Virginia University student Nicole Lewis, and she says, I hate to break it to all of you that are terrified of campus carry, but if someone is going to bring a gun on campus for the wrong reasons, they're going to do so with or without legislation to carry. Zach Van Adder from Huntington says, it's laughable that you all think that people don't carry concealed weapons on campus even though it's prohibit prohibited. And opposition and support is passionate on both sides of the campus carry. That's the uh, Campus Self-Defense Act. That's on first reading in the House today. Uh, we have a clip from uh, a coalition of professors and, and students who were here airing their opposition. We have to prepare our teachers and our students for that new reality. Uh, we have to make sure that they understand really, really well what the, what the legislation says, uh, how it works, and what to do if there's something that doesn't go the way it's supposed to. For example, I can imagine a student coming up at the end of class uh, hurriedly and, and, and saying to an instructor, I might have seen a gun in a bag, or I might, you know, like, and being very concerned, and we need to make sure that, that teachers are ready for that sort of situation, even if it's supposed to be uncommon. There's a daycare facility in the building I work in specifically, and um, West Virginia state law says that you cannot reasonably have guns in a daycare facility, which is something that I think makes pretty good sense. So some of the amendments to the bill, as indicated right now, make the campus carry situation pretty confusing. Um, rooms full of 1,000 people or more are safe zones, which means men's sports would be considered a safe zone, but women's sports who tend to get a lower audience would not be. And I just think that the bill, the way it is written, I'm ethically against it in general, but the way that it's written as such right now is especially problematic. Next, we've mentioned House Bill 3136. That's the Medicaid work requirement bill on amendment stage this evening in the House of Delegates. Joining us to share their perspective on this issue and this bill in particular are Chantal Fields, Executive Director of West Virginians for Affordable Health Care, and Dr. Simon Hayter, a political science professor at the Rockefeller School of Policy and Politics at West Virginia University. Thank you both for joining me this evening. Um, again, there was a press uh, conference, a, a coalition came together, West Virginians for Affordable uh, Health Care, West Virginians Together for Medicaid, and West Virginia Center for Budget and Policy. Now, this particular bill was originated last week in committee. Uh, it was presented and, and passed out of committee on Thursday. It would require 20 hours a week for beneficia uh, Medicaid beneficiaries, a large portion of them, um, to work 20 hours a week or complete 20 uh, community service hours or job training hours or the equivalent thereof. Now, uh, Ms. Fields, House Finance Chairman Eric Householder um, said this bill is about putting people back to work. It's about giving people a sense of purpose. Um, your coalition put out a release that said this legislation represents a sneak attack on the health care of hundreds of thousands of West Virginians. So elaborate on your position. Um, so we saw it um, as a little sneaky because it was originated in a committee. It came as a complete surprise to all of the health care providers uh, and community in the state. Um, essentially, Medicaid's not meant to be a jobs program. Medicaid is a health insurance program, and anything that uh, could potentially take people off of that health insurance 
concerns us as an organization that is is in the in the um, our job is to make sure that people have health care coverage. Um, and what we have seen in other states that have implemented work requirements for Medicaid uh, benefits is people have actually been thrown off the rolls of Medicaid. Uh, Arkansas was the first state to implement. They lost 18,000 people off of their uh, rolls last year, and it wasn't necessarily 18,000 people that weren't working. And, and so what we want to do, um, uh, Professor Hader, is to try to look into that, and that's what you've done in a very recent uh, uh, study. Mm -hmm. You've looked at the impact of work requirements on uh, this uh, group of beneficiaries. Let's first start um, uh, to talk about the group uh, that we're focusing on. There are some, one-third of our state mm -hmm is a is uh, a beneficiary beneficiaries of Medicaid this group is what particular group there are exemptions there are uh, there mm -hmm. are exemptions people don't have to work if they have certain if they're in certain situations so tell us what kind of group we're, we're talking about right uh, states have a lot of leeway in how they apply for these waivers um, most exempt people with pregnancies and so forth but I think what's important uh, to note is that no matter who you exempt the transformational changes affect the entire Medicaid population while you only require certain individuals to uh, fulfill those requirements. How do you mean? How do they affect everyone? Uh, because we know that it creates confusion. Uh, people don't know how they have to report, who has to report. It's confusion about who gets exempted, how do you get an exemption. There's lots of paperwork. You create lots of bureaucracy, lots of red tape. And the end, end result really is that the entire program is transformed and lots of individuals lose health insurance coverage. Uh, let's, let's talk about, um, a, a, again, that group. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I've read the, the mm -hmm. summary of your mm -hmm. report. Uh, of the 280 beneficiaries, we're talking about 95,000 West Virginians that would immediately be impacted through a piece of legislation like this? That's the estimate we, we came up with. Um, it's always hard to tell exactly what the number would be. So the range would be about 100,000 is, is my best guess uh, based on the data and report. And something like 20,000 of um, these beneficiaries are working currently. Right, there's lots of individuals in the Medicaid program that are currently working. Uh, there's also the concern is in, in Arkansas we have seen that people are working but they don't know how to report or they have challenges reporting because they don't have internet access. And uh, the confusion contributes to these people losing coverage despite fulfilling the requirements. Um, uh, Ms. Fields, you mentioned that, you know, um, that this is not a um, back-to-work program, it is a health care program, and, and that was actually challenged successfully, um, that position was challenged successfully in Kentucky. Yes. What have we learned from the Kentucky ruling? Well, actually, that's going back to court again on March 14th. Um, both Kentucky and Arkansas are now being taken uh, to court, and that will be heard in district court on uh, March 14th. But essentially, the court case said that it is not a jobs program and that uh, to put a work requirement in place was never the intent of the Medicaid program. Um, uh, Dr. Hader, if, if we could uh, talk about what your, um, what your research found in terms of the barriers mm -hmm. to these folks actually being able to get those 20 hours of either training or or work or being mm -hmm. able to conduct that community service. Yeah, West Virginia, West Virginia is probably the most challenging state to implement work requirements. We have low rates of internet access. We have low rates of transportation access. We are a rural state. And it's very, very hard for these individuals, even if they are able to comply, even if they overcome disabilities and sicknesses and all those kind of things. Uh, it's very hard for them to 
report their compliance. And that creates tremendous challenges in a state like West Virginia. And we really you know, have great concerns about those based on the report because we're such an unhealthy and challenged state. You've listed many things in your research, um, health uh, limitations, mm -hmm. less than a high school education, mm -hmm. access to a vehicle, uh, no household phone access mm -hmm. or internet access. Uh, Ms. Fields, are you, are, are you getting in touch one-on-one -on -one with, uh, with, with legislators who have this, uh, have this bill before them? There are a lot of groups right now that are working one-on-one -on -one with legislators trying to get the information to them. Um, specifically, what we're asking is please slow down, do your research, um, allow the experts to weigh in on this, allow those who are Medicaid recipients to weigh in on how this is going to affect them. So yes, we, we've got folks that are, are reaching out to legislators. And what is DHHR saying? Um, I think that they were as surprised as we were that this uh, happened. Um, that I think that's, that they were just as surprised as we were. Um, uh, Dr. Hader, uh, you know, to, to implement something like this, you detail that mm -hmm. it is in, in, a significant investment mm -hmm. uh, on, on the part of the state mm -hmm. to, to track these requirements, to, you know, to watch what's happening. Yeah, taxpayers should be very concerned about this. Uh, the estimates in Kentucky have shown that administrative costs for the Medicaid program have gone up by 40%. Uh, you need better IT, you need to hire more people, you need caseworkers to deal with this. It takes about an hour for a caseworker worker to do, deal with in exemptions. These are very, very costly and requires a lot of investment in state bureaucracy, and I don't think that's a good choice at this time. And tell us about your research, um, uh, how the Medicaid system is, is so crucial, not only to individuals, mm -hmm. but it's really the backbone of our healthcare infrastructure. Yeah, all West Virginians should be concerned about this. We are a rural state with rural hospitals. About half of our rural hospitals are operating virtually on zero margins. Uh, you take coverage away from individuals, these people are still getting sick. They still need to go to the doctor. They still need to go to the emergency room. And all of a sudden, you don't have a payer anymore. Rural hospitals are bound to close. And that affects all West Virginians. Uh, Ms. Fields, other, other points that you want to make uh, about 3136? I think I would just reiterate what uh, Dr. Haber said. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, that um, this is bad all around. It's bad for the health of West Virginians. It's bad for the health of our economy. It's bad for our health care systems. By taking money and health care out of the system, it's not going to be a good thing. Please, we would, we would like to see some more further research done on the issue before a bill such as this, as this is passed. Professor Hader, you say if the goal is to increase workforce mm -hmm. participation, there are a list of things that can be done. In a one-minute summation, <laughs> what would that be? I think uh, we should encourage people to work. Uh, that, that lifts people out of poverty, but what we should be doing is expanding these, or creating a state EITC. We should encourage people to further their education. Free community college would be a great path forward. Uh, tax incentives for people that are working, and I think that is the best thing. If we care about people working, and coming out of poverty, that's the path forward and not cutting Medicaid. Uh, expanding the coverage of the Affordable Care Act, mm -hmm. uh, addressing the high cost of prescription mm -hmm. drugs, and expanding child mm -hmm. care assistance are just some of the mm -hmm. uh, other positives that you point to. Thank you both for being here. Chantal Fields, Executive Director of the West Virginians for Affordable Health Care, and Dr. Simon Hayter, Political Science Professor at the WVU Rockefeller School of Policy and Politics. Thank you Thank both you. so much. House Bill 2452 is the Secure West Virginia Act and passed the House of Delegates today. It now moves to the Senate. Randy Yowie reports.
House Bill 2452 would greatly enhance computer threat protection by creating a centralized cybersecurity office. The bill applies to all state entities except for the legislative and judiciary branches and institutions of higher education. We talked to delegates on the Technology and Infrastructure Committee. Evan Hansen is one of many who have seen the multi-millions of dollars cybersecurity attacks have cost several other states. We need this because there are criminals, there are hackers out there that are constantly attacking um, our computer systems in West Virginia and across the country. And $4.2 million might seem like a lot of money, but a single incident, if they're successful, would cost way more than that. The $4.2 million requested in the bill would be a single startup cost. It would take two years to hire specialists, upgrade equipment, and purchase security programs to complete the project. Following a risk assessment, individual state agencies would pay for addressing any discovered cyber threats on their systems. And the first thing that we're going to be doing is looking at the cybersecurity office and hopefully being able to assess all of the different ways that, uh, that we have vulnerabilities and then be able to create an action plan to take care of that moving forward. Delegate Tony Painter does not see the need for spending 4.2 million taxpayer dollars on a centralized cybersecurity office. I thought we would just be money ahead to have the departments cover it themselves and go that route. The way it was introduced to us, they went like we hadn't been doing any cybersecurity. And so there's certain standards and practices that are, that are industry standard that we aren't currently um, put implementing and that we don't have a centralized uh, location to, to really track all of our different vulnerabilities. And so um, in doing that, if you don't know which doors you've left unlocked, it's hard to lock them, right? If we allow these hackers to get in here, we're going to spend triple that amount of money. And we need everyone's information to be safe. State Technology Department leaders say if the Cybersecurity Office program is successful, it could possibly move forward to all West Virginia government levels. For the Legislature Today, I'm Randy Yowie. Tomorrow in the Legislature Today, we'll take a look at several criminal justice reform bills and the support they have on both sides of the aisle. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.